All right, a little technical problem, that's okay. How are y'all doing? All right, I'm excited that you are here. I want to uh, give you a quick uh, preview of where we've been in this series. We are in a series called You Lost Me at Leviticus, and the heart of this series is that we're looking at the Old Testament, and there's a lot of us that think maybe as Christ followers we need to... uh, Yeah, I got it, no wonder. It'll just take uh, a few seconds for technical difficulties to be... But way to go, Daniel. That was helpful. All right, y'all give Daniel a round of applause. I love you. So... We've been looking at the book of Leviticus and specifically, or not just the book of Leviticus, we've actually been looking at all the Old Testament laws, and and by law, we actually mean the Torah, which actually means the first five books of the Bible. But the mindset that some of us have heard or encountered is the idea that the Old Testament no longer applies, or maybe there's nothing in the Old Testament for me, and in fact, there are some bad beliefs. And so I've been trying to attack these bad beliefs and giving us a better understanding of the Old Testament so that it can, we can see how it applies to our lives now. Specifically, what we've said is that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament laws. And when we live out a fulfilled law, what that means is that law, the way God says it, it's no longer written on paper, it's written on our hearts. Meaning that it's no longer something that judges our character and molds our character from the outside. Instead, what God's desire through the law is, is to have it written on our hearts so that we in all things reflect the heart of God by the way we act. And so when we look at the Old Testament and we can find a principle that shows us the heart of God, it gives us kind of an insight into how we should act. Now, in the next uh, couple of weeks, I really want you to be here. Next week, we have Dr. Freeman is going to be here. He is a, a, a Jewish Christian, and he is going to walk us through what is called a Seder meal, that is the Passover meal. And he's going to show us how even in a traditional Jewish Passover meal, that you can see Jesus all over the Passover meal, that Christ is in the Passover. And the reason I wanted to tie that message with the message from today is that there's an idea sometimes that the God of the Old Testament is separate than the God of the New Testament, and that is distinctly a bad idea. That is a wrong thought. And so we're going to be attacking that this week and next week. And then in two weeks, we're going to start getting into some of the nitty-gritty laws of the Old Testament. Uh, Specifically, uh, we're going to look at the tattoo law. That's one that's been asked about. We even did the video on. And so we're going to have a little contest just to have some fun. So if you have a tattoo or you have a heavily tattooed friend that doesn't like church, um, that would be a great week to invite him. We're going to have a contest on uh, the best tattoo And I think we're going to have the best tattoo cover-up also. You have somebody who's had to change, or maybe just the tattoo you wish you wouldn't have gotten. We're going to give away some prizes, and and so we're going to show you how to reflect uh, those. But we're going to look at some of these laws, and we're going to try to find the principles from them so that when your grandmother gets mad at you at Christmas or when somebody accuses you of picking and choosing, oh, you Christians, you're just hypocrites. You pick and choose what you believe. We're going to to get into the nitty-gritty so that you can see the heart of God in these laws, and you'll be able to understand how we live a fulfilled law. But today I want to do something uh, that I've been wanting to do for years and years and years, and I'm so excited about this message. Today we are going to attack what I call a defeater mindset, okay? Now there are several things that I call uh, and that are called uh, idea defeaters, When it comes to religion and a defeater is anything, anytime you throw out one statement that defeats an idea before it's even presented. Okay. And we see this all the time. Anytime I want to go out to eat with my family, 
hey, y'all, let's go out to eat. And immediately, hey, I would love to go out to eat, just not Mexican food. Hey, I would love to go out to eat, just not burgers, just not uh, Italian food, just not tacos. And then all of a sudden, I, I wanted to go out to lunch, and now I can't go out to lunch because every idea has been defeated with no discussion. And, and that's kind of what a defeater is. It stops down an argument before you even get there. And so... When it comes to religion, sometimes you might be in a discussion or maybe you're listening to a podcast or you see on the news and you'll see somebody say something about religion, specifically about Christianity, that kind of makes you shrink back and say, oh, I have nothing to say to that. And so I want to give you a couple of examples that are pretty big examples. Uh, um, there have been some popular books, and by popular, I mean millions of copies sold over the last 20 years that, that kind of exemplify these defeater mindsets. One of them is by a man named Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins wrote, he is a, um, an evolutionary biologist. Uh, he's a really smart guy, and he wrote a book called The God Delusion. He is very anti-religion. That's his words, not mine. He, he thinks religion is, is a bad thing. And one of the things he said in his book, The God Delusion, which I've read and I recommend you read these things, uh, I, I would consider this, by the way, to be a straw man book. Uh, there are much better, if you want to be challenged in your faith, there are much better books to read than uh, this one. Uh, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Now that right there is a defeater that we're going to come across, this idea that God is an ethnic cleanser, that God is a racist, that God hates certain people, and that he will wipe them off the face of the earth. This is something levied against God. Uh, you see it again in another book by Christopher Hitchens, who passed away a few years ago, but one of the things he wrote in a, in a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, uh, you can understand a lot about Christopher Hitchens' view of religion just from the title of his book, but he said the Bible may indeed does, contain a warrant for trafficking humans, for ethnic cleansing, there we have it again, for slavery, for bride price, and for indiscriminate massacre. But we are not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. Over and over again, when you, you, you'll see, I've, I've encountered this many times, whether it's just listening to certain podcasts, whether it's uh, talking to people when I was a, in, on a college campus, um, I would often have this accusation that I could never follow God because of God uh, of the Old Testament, usually is the way it was framed, the God of the Old Testament, he, he commanded that entire uh, um, people be wiped out, that he was an ethnic cleanser. And in fact, in fact, we know that God has been used, specifically this God of the Old Testament, has been used to, uh, to um, fight for slavery, fight for bad ideas over and over again, used in, in horrible ways. But it's almost always when it's accu this accusation is what we call a defeater. In other words, it's, it's an idea that's presented by someone that has not done the work to understand the context of what God's heart was in his law. And, and so today I want to look at what I believe are the um, most popular uses that levied against uh, uh, Christ followers or people um, when it comes to evidence that God is an ethnic cleanser, that God is uh, full of hate, specifically that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. 
And uh, I want to. I'm going to go to two verses that I've, or two passages that I believe are that I've seen used a lot. Now, before I get into it, though, I want to give you a heads up on a couple of things. This is going to be for some of you. If it's new, this is what we call a heavy sermon. And so, if uh, if, if some of this goes over your head and you just get the main idea, hey, you're totally fine, okay? You don't have to catch every single thing. I, I, I never catch it on the first time, me personally. In fact, some of the things that I'm teaching you today was because I had to go back time and time and, and connect some of these dots. It's okay if some of this doesn't make sense to you, if, especially if you're new to uh, following Christ or new to the Bible. But I hope the overall idea will make sense to you. One of the things that you can do is on your phone, you can go to connectionpoint.life on your phones. And at connectionpoint.life, you can click on the little sermon card. And I've got all the, the notes, sermon notes there, all of the passages of scripture, all of those things. So today or tomorrow, if you want to go back and, and kind of look up some of these scriptures that I'm going to gloss over, you can feel free to do that. You don't have to write them all down right now. So let's look at what I believe are some challenging passages that if they were thrown at you with no context, could be pretty discouraging. Here's one that is used, has been used against me and is used by almost every um, book against Christianity I've ever read. It's, it's uh, specifically the last line of this. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare. Down to its foundations, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. And then this word blessed means happy. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Over and over again in conversations over the, over the years, I had people say, how can you follow a God? He's evil who would command that babies be dashed against the rock. And they will reference this passage that God has commanded Israel or has commanded his people to dash babies against the rock. First of all, I want to give you a sigh of relief. That's not what just happened here, okay? You can breathe. But I do want to explain a little bit, and then I want to dive into uh, some, some history to this passage. Now, in this passage, it is a genre. The Bible has more genres in one piece of literature. In fact, if you know um, the, the truth, the Bible isn't one book, it's many books. It's 66 books, and they're each different genres. And even within a genre, a type of literature, you have different types of literature. You have poetry, you have songs, you have uh, narratives, historical stories, you have apocalyptic literature, you have letters, just epistles. You have just writings. And then you have, uh, within those uh, types of genres, you have different genres. This is a specific type of genre. This is a psalm, first of all. It's a song, and it's, it's used for worship. This is called an impeccatory psalm, if you want to write that down. I don't know why you would. You'll never say that word again. But it is basically, it is a, it is a type of psalm that's a little negative, and it is, uh, it's a curse. It's placing a curse, or it's, it's hoping for a curse specifically. It's also got several different types. It's got uh, um, synect uh, synecdoche. Is a, a, it's a literary device of where you take one of the part and you kind of project it onto the whole. It's also got a lot of symbolism and recalling other things going. So there's a lot going on in this. But I just want to point out a couple of things of how this pass, what this passage is. This passage, let me move this microphone. This passage was written by a prophet named Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah 
was living at a time when Babylon, which was a country, came in and besieged and basically raised, which means it's the opposite of raising, it's lowering. They basically wiped out everything. And they come into Israel, into Jerusalem, and they wipe it out. And they take all the people and they move them. And so Jeremiah and all, and all of these people are being moved um, into captivity, into slavery, into a different land. They're being forced to change their religion and all of their beliefs. And so this prophet is a little perturbed, okay? And so he goes into this genre. And just to give you an example of, of how genres matter, um, I always like to go when I talk about genres to the greatest genre of music, 90s gangster rap, correct? Right? <laughs> Are we, we clear? Specifically G-Funk, right? We're, that's, that's where we should land on the best rap is Snoop Dogg, early Snoop Dogg. Just saying. Now, if I were to tell you, though, that I like 90s rap, you might think, oh, he's talking about, um, there's a lot of different 90s rap. It could be the Beastie Boys. It could be, uh, you know, and they're kind of more talking about themselves, excited. It could be uh, Skilo talking about, I wish y'all know that. Yeah, we're there. The Humpty Dance, it could be more pop, right? Okay, I'm losing all of you. But if you hear me, and you'll never see this, but if you saw me driving with Dr. Dre going or, or NWA or something, you probably won't see this happening. It might have happened. Where I'm listening to this in the car, driving, and you I say, oh my gosh, that's my pastor listening to, to gangster rap. You wouldn't in your mind assume he is on his way to Compton to, to shoot up a neighbor, right? You wouldn't make that leap, right? You would understand he's listening to a song, or even if I wrote a gangster rap, which I haven't, it's not out there, don't look for it. You would understand he's really not going to do this. No one thinks that, that because you wrote a song, in other words, it's a genre and the genre matters. But you can see the heart of it. You can see a prophet who's writing a song because what has happened in his life and what he sees around him has made him so upset. But this line right here, he didn't pull out of, of nowhere. It was actually something that another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah said to Babylon in a, warn, a warning to Babylon. He said, Babylon, I want to make sure you know that just as you have done to us, God is going to do to you. And just as you have smashed our babies against the rocks, God will someday do to you. And so the prophet Jeremiah, in his anger and in his frustration, says, I can't wait until the day when what, when you, what you did to us, God does to you. And he writes it in a song. And the only thing that happens is we lost the context and we didn't understand that this is not a command of God. This is a hurting man who wrote a psalm that reflects his hurting heart. So I'm not trying to convince you anything here other than maybe give him a break. It's the same way if you're driving and, and somebody cuts you off in traffic and whatever you say in the next 30 seconds, you don't want to define your beliefs for the rest of your life to everyone else. That's what's going here. It's a hurting guy who has proclaimed his pain in a song. Okay, so that's what's going on. But he makes an interesting reference here. He says, remember the Edomites. The day of Jerusalem. And this is weird because the Edomites haven't existed for 200 years when he writes this. And it's even more interesting because the Edomites were killed by the Babylonians. Specifically, they were eventually wiped out by a man named Xerxes, who also uh, was the one who wiped out and, and carried this passage out. Xerxes came in. Xerxes, by the way, was married to a woman named Esther. And uh, Xerxes comes in and he actually takes over Babylon and he wipes out Babylon. 
king of Persia. But this reference to Edom recalls some pain from the prophet Jeremiah that happened years and years ago. And in fact, there's another command that is tied to it, that he's recalling. He says, there, this is Deuteronomy, this is about a thousand years before, a uh, thousand, maybe 800 years before Jeremiah ever said, I, I wish, I can't wait till that happens, till Babylon is destroyed. He references the Edomites, and he says specifically, I, I remember them. And he's recalling this passage that the prophet, or that Moses said as a law, and when he was writing some laws down. He said, therefore, when your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, and the land that the Lord God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek. From under the heaven you shall not forget. I thought we were talking about Edom. What is Amalek? I want to show you a map real quick uh, just to give you some context. This is happening right before Israel is going in to take control of the promised land. This is what Israel eventually is going to move into all where you see Judah and Samaria and Galilee. Now, this is an older map. I just want you to see, though, that underneath there is the Negev, okay, and Edom. Now, the Negev is a desert, and in the Negev is a, is a group of people called the Amalekites, or Amalek. And if I say Amalek, that's like saying Israel. It's the name of a country, but it's really the name of a people. But they would wander the Negev, and they would wander into Edom a lot too. And so sometimes when the Bible talks about Edom, they're specifically talking about the, the land Edom. But sometimes it's talking about just people who are in the land of Edom. Okay, So the Amalekites are not necessarily always in Edom, but there are people, they're, they're marauders, they are nomadic people, they, they have camels, they have tents, and they move around, and a lot of times they'll be in the Negev, but they'll move into this, this land of Edom, okay? So, long story short, or short story long, however you want to say it, the Edomites and Amalekites for this sermon are going to be the same people, okay? Now, uh, it's similar, by the way, if... Uh, if you're from Oklahoma, and I, instead of saying, hey, you're from Oklahoma, I just say, hey, you're a Yankee. You're, you're north of the Red River. You're all Yankees, right? It's, we understand there's a difference, but ah, you can kind of just group everybody north of the Red River, right? Amen? amen. Everyone from Texas says amen. Um, so, where was I? Um, when, we, when we look at this, Amalek is Edom, okay? This idea of Remember what you said about Edom is the same command of what they said to Amalek. And on the surface, it seems pretty harsh that God would say about a people, you need to blot out this people. He specifically says blot out, but never forget. Blot out, but never forget what they did. And, and so, as we look at what Amalek did, I'm going to, there are several ways I could do this. I could try to convince you that God isn't really saying wipe them out. I could try to convince you that it's different, that, you know, it's not the, the same now as then, but I'm instead going to take a more fun, interesting route. I'm going to try to convince you to hate Amalek. I'm going to try to convince you that the best thing we could do is walk out of here and say, I would like to go to war with Amalek right now. In fact, I would like to, you to walk out and say, you know what, the most righteous thing that God might have ever done 
was to say Amalek needs to be wiped off the face of the earth. Now, if you're new here and you're thinking, what kind of hillbilly church have I gotten myself? Are there Confederate flags hanging out around here? I just want to say, hang with me. Let's ride together a little bit and let's understand the context. You do have to do some work when you're looking at a, at a context of a different group of people with different customs, okay? Um, and I also want to point out just on the surface that uh, this never happens, that they don't actually blot them out. In fact, here's the time frame that, we're going, that I'm going to kind of walk you through real quick. In 1400, this is Deuteronomy. Uh, this is when Deuteronomy happens, when God tells Moses to blot them out. That happens about 14, or 1400 years before Christ. Um, and and when, when God says this to Moses, remember, the Israelites have just escaped from Egypt. They have been wandering around and they are tired. They are exhausted. They've been wandering. And all of a sudden, they're coming close to the promised land. And so God says, you're going to get to the promised land. Things are going to settle down. And when things settle down, go back and get rid of Edom. Get rid of the Amalekites. Because event X, something happened about 60 years before that law was ever given that changed, that provoked God in a way that, that would never change. In fact, God would say, there will never be a, gen he says, from generation to generation, we will be at war with Amalek. And then he says, 60 years later, blot him out. And I just want to point out that for the next thousand years, Amalek exists. This doesn't actually happen. For some of you, you might think that's a good thing. I'm going to try to convince you it's a bad thing. Okay, because certain things happen after this. In 1250, there's a time of the judges. So after Israel comes in, the way they govern themselves is they just uh, appoint some, some leaders, and these leaders are called judges. These judges are not ruling over everything. They're ruling over small territories. And so uh, in the southern part of uh, Israel, on that map it's Judah, it's, it's just Israel. In the, the southern part, there is uh, another uh, place called Moab. And Moab gets mad at Israel. And Moab says, I'm going to war with Israel. And in Judges chapter 3, we see the Amalekites jump in with the king of Moab when he's coming in to fight against Israel. And for no reason, they were never provoked. The Amalekites were never attacked by Israel. The Amalekites decide, hey, somebody's going to war with Israel. We're in. Let's go. And they jump in. And then about 100 years after that, this would have been about 1150 B.C., the, uh, the Jewish people are, are planting their crops, and in Judges chapter 6, this is a story of a man named Gideon, uh, they're just planting their crops, and it says that the Midianites and the Amalekites would come and just steal their crops, they would lay waste to all of the land so that the, the, the animals could not graze, and they, they would kill, they would kidnap any women they could take or children they could take, and they would just... For no other reason than Israel is trying to plant crops and exist. Israel is just trying to live. They are not going into Edom. They are not provoking Edom. They are not at war with Edom. But for, for no other reason than they hate the existence of the Israelites, the Amalekites will go in and they will just steal or destroy just to be a thorn in the side and try to hurt and harm Israel few uh, hundred years later, we'll get into now God raises up the first king. And instead of being judges, the whole land is ruled by one king. His name is Saul. Saul is anointed king. Anointed means he's, he's uh, put that mantle is placed on him by a prophet, the prophet Samuel. 
And when the prophet Samuel anoints uh, Saul, the, the first king of Israel, he says something specific. He says, the first act of business that we're going to do, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 15. He says, we're going to go and we're going to fight Amalek. And we're going to do what we should have done 200, 300 years ago. We should, have, or 400 years ago, we should have wiped them off the face of the earth. And so he goes to war with Amalek. Saul goes to war with Amalek. First time that he goes, that, that Israel goes to war with Amalek. But you need to know something. This is good detail. One of the laws, Deuteronomy chapter 20, says anytime Israel goes to war, they always offer peace first. They never go and just kill. They always offer, hey, would you like to join and worship our God? Would you like to come and be a part of it? If they say, yes, we would like to come and be a part of your nation, follow your God, follow your customs, then they are allowed to become Israelites, basically. And we see this many times that, that there are people who say, hey, we'll, we'll do it. We'll come and, and we'll work for you. We will, we will not try to overtake you. And that happens. So that's always offered. But Amalek never takes this. Amalek instead will go to war with Israel. And so Saul goes to war and he defeats the Amalekites. And he brings the Amalekite king right in front of him and he lets him go. And this is a sin because Samuel said, hey, you're going to be king, but the only way you're going to be king is if you totally wipe them out, wipe everything out that has to do with the Amalekites. Get rid of anyone that can carry the ideas in the head of an Amalekite. Get rid of the kids, get rid of, I mean, and it's a harsh punishment. Saul doesn't do this. In fact, Saul takes over the Amalekites and he says, you know what? Y'all got some good, good stuff here. You got good oxen. You got a pretty nice king. You got pretty nice people. You can stay. Okay, we'll be good. And, and he keeps the king alive. The prophet Samuel sees this and he gets mad. And it says that in a very good movie line, the prophet Samuel comes up to the king um, uh, of Amalek. And his name, by the way, is Agag. Okay, y'all say that with me, Agag. That's the king of Amalek. It's going to be important in just a second. Okay, the king of Amalek is kind of uh, excited because he wasn't killed when he was captured. And so he's alive, and the prophet Samuel sees he's still alive. He goes up to him. The prophet Samuel goes up, and he says, this, this is an awesome movie line quote, okay? If I was making a movie, this would be in it. He says, just as you have made mothers childless, so now you will be childless among mothers. And he starts hacking him to death. And, and what is considered an act of God, an act of worship to God, he hacks. That'd be an interesting church service, right? Okay. <laughs> He hacks this king, and he destroys this king, Agag, and he gets rid of him, and he says, everything should have been destroyed, and then he turns to Saul, and he says, because you did not kill him when you got him, you are no longer king, and that act is what removes Saul from king, and so about 20, 30 years after this, there's a man named David, and David is not yet king. But he's been in hiding because Saul didn't like him and Saul was king. And now that Saul is on his way out, David comes back into Israel. He'd been hiding out in a place called Canaan. David comes into Israel and he goes to a place called Ziklag, an Israelite place, town. And he goes in and he finds that the Amalekites have raided. They're still in existence. They haven't been wiped out, even though Saul was supposed to do it. The judges were supposed to do it. The Israelites before that were supposed to do it. Nobody's wiped them out. And these Amalekites come into Ziklag. 
And they find it burned to the ground. In fact, I'll read to you how um, Samuel says it in 1 Samuel. It says, Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. And when David came and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters had been taken captive, and they were not killed. Now, you might, not, you might say, hey, that's kind of nice that the Amalekites didn't kill the women and children. They just took the wives captives. But I want to remind you that when pirates and raiders and marauders, those are good football team names, but in real life, those are not good people. In real life, when pirates or marauders take women and children and don't kill them, it's not because their intentions are good. What they did to these women and children is not good. And it is not a holy thing. It is not a a nice thing. Understand that. So David has to go, and he has to go and fight Amalek, and he has to go and rescue, and he does. And he rescues and brings them back. And so now here we are, uh, uh, 400 years into this, and there's this mindset that anytime Amalek can, they will just invade unprovoked, and they will go against Israel. They will just, even if it's just existing, Amalek will fight them. Amalek, if they hear somebody's going to war, they'll get in on it. If they can steal and hurt, they'll get in on it. Now, in the year 600, about 600, Babylon comes in and destroys, takes takes all this area. Takes the Edomites, takes Israel, takes everything, okay? And so the Edomites are gone. And then a few hundred years, or 100 years after that, we're in the year 465. Not even in, the setting is no longer even in Israel. We're all the way over in in Persia now. So a man named King Xerxes, he defeated Babylon, and Babylon had defeated this area, Edom, all that. And Xerxes has a wife, Esther, and in the book of Esther, this name pops up that we have already heard. And understand, the Edomites have been gone for 200 years. Story should be over, a story that it should be a fulfilled law, but in Esther chapter 3, this is what we read. Then King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite. Where have we heard that word, Agagite? Agag. He is a, he's from the lineage of the Amalekites. He is an Amalekite, even though it doesn't exist anymore, but he still has this lineage and he still has this mindset. And he comes to power in Persia. And this is what he does in Persia. He goes to the king now that he has a little bit of, of power, and he says to King Xerxes, he says, There's a certain people scattered abroad, and they're dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your your kingdom. Now, their laws are different of every other people. They don't keep the king's laws, so that it is not for the king to profit by tolerating them. If it pleases the king, can it be decreed that they be destroyed? And he takes the signet ring of the king, and he carries out or attempts to carry out what is the first holocaust. Simply because these people exist, I want them dead. And he makes a law among all of Persia that we will wipe out the Jews. In fact, this thread that has existed now, it's gone way beyond this, this thousand years of terror uh, that has existed since this command. Now we see it's going far beyond the existence of just the Amalekites. It's no longer talking about a people, it's talking about a mindset. 
And in, in, in fact, there's a, a, a celebration called Purim. And in Purim, anytime the word uh, Haman is spoken, the people will shout out so that you can't hear his name during that ceremony, during that uh, uh, festival. And it's, it's recalling Deuteronomy 25, we will blot out the name of the Amalekites. How does that matter to us? A few months ago, I went to Israel, and I had a very interesting, uh, we had an interesting tour guide. He's a Jewish man, uh, Christian also. But I noticed, not just once, but many times, the name of Haman and the Agagites would be brought up. And I want to play you one of those, because the first time I heard this, I didn't catch it. I didn't understand it. In fact, I thought it was kind of a crazy thing to say. But go ahead and roll this. This is on our tour. Who was Haman? What was his family name? Hagagite. Who was the Hagagite? The king of the Amalek. And you know who are the modern Amalek? The Nazis. Hmm. Now, anytime somebody calls somebody a Nazi, we all kind of like, whoa, okay, that's a pretty big deal. But do you know that at almost every Jewish uh, or Holocaust museum, you'll find, in fact, I got a picture of one, but you'll find almost every uh, Holocaust museum will have a, an inscription of Deuteronomy 25, 19. Here's one uh, in Poland. And, and in the inscription, it only has part of 25, 19. It says, blot out the name of Amalek and do not forget. And in fact, for the last thousands and thousands of years since Amalek is no longer a people, Jewish uh, rabbis have taught that Amalek is the mindset of anti-Semitism and racism. And that anytime we encounter somebody who simply hates a type of person because they exist, that that person will provoke the wrath of God. We've seen people use the name of God to condone, and they do so by glossing over the context of what is going on in the passage. In fact, you'll never understand this passage until you find out about event X. You see, all of these right here, the thousand years after, and even to this day, that we see of anti-Semitism, and even broader than that, racism, hating someone just because of the color of their skin or where they were born, the type of, of person that would hate just because they exist, want to wipe out just because they exist, <coughs> provoked God about 60 years before that law was ever given. And so I want to look at that law, and I want you to understand what's going on. The context of this law uh, of, that Moses gave in Deuteronomy to blot out the name of Amalek occurred because of an event that happened when Israel was trying to escape from the Egyptians. Israel's trying to escape. They have just been, God has granted them the release. They've been enslaved for 400 years. And they, in their freedom, God takes them uh, out miraculously, frees them, and they're, and they're on their way, and they get out into the desert, and, and eat. the Egyptians change their minds and begin to pursue them. And so they have to make haste. They have to run away. And these are not all warriors. These are slaves. These are grandmothers. These are grandchildren. Uh, these are, are, are men, women, children, lame, old, young, everybody. And they get out and they finally get kind of away. And they're trying to figure out what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? How are we going to make this? We are now in a desert. 
And so Moses sent a messenger. This is Numbers chapter 20, but this was the context. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh, that's in the desert, to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know the hardships that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt and have lived in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And we cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard our voice, and he sent an angel and he brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through the field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through, lest I come out with swords against you. And the people of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway, and if we drink your water, and I and my livestock, I will pay for it. Only let me pass through on foot, nothing more. And he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through the territory, and so turned Israel away. Now you may be saying that's pretty mean, but it doesn't seem like that should provoke a genocide to wipe out an entire people. That's the context for Deuteronomy. Of course, I lost my screen. Um, so what happens is they write a law, and this law is pretty, it's kind of an amusing law when you, when you hear this law. It seems kind of disjointed if you ever read the Old Testament. I'm going to read for you the law that this Deuteronomy chapter 25 passage comes from. It says, let me get the right one. It's just a random law. When men fight with one another and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of one who is beating him, and he, she puts her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eyes shall have no pity. It's a weird law, right? And, and at least the guys will say, we kind of chuckle at that when, ladies, I know you're the same, right? If a woman sees her husband fighting with another man, and she thinks he's not looking, and she grabs to help her husband out, and that is the inter international sign for grabbing a man's privates. I can't help it. It does it every time I talk. And she just reaches, and she grabs a man by his private parts. God says, hey, that's not okay. Cut her hand off. He says, have no pity on her. Then the next law, very next verse, you shall, have, you shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, so that the days, your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. For all who do such thing, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. And then the next thing he says is, remember what Amalek did to you. It's pretty interesting. He says, remember Amalek. Because of Amalek, if you see two men in a fight, and we, we went over the first week, if uh, anytime you read a Jewish law or an, uh, an ancient law from Israel, just because it says a wife, it doesn't just apply to wives. It, it applies if it's your brother or your friend. It, it's, this is the extreme example, but it applies to anything. And it doesn't just mean his junk, his, his private parts. It means it could be his head. It could be you kicked him in the... You, you jumped him when he wasn't looking. That's the principle out here, okay? 
But what God is saying in this law is anytime you have two men, and in our day and age, we don't settle things with fistfights as much as they used to back in the day, but we can at least understand the concept that there are some things that rather than go to a lawyer, rather than just, you, know, you just settle, especially with guys, you settle it once and for all with a fist fight. And that's kind of the context that this happens and it's a fair fight and they're going to decide it. It'll be done with. It's not life or death. It's just going to be decided. But someone decides I'm going to come in and I'm going to take advantage of one side because they're not ready and they seize him by the vulnerable parts. God says, anytime you see someone vulnerable, even if they're fighting for justice, if you see someone that's vulnerable and you take advantage of it, you're going to provoke my anger. And the next law, he says, if you have two different types of weights, one that you use to measure your stuff when you're cooking and baking, but whenever you're going and you're selling your stuff, you switch weights and you're cheating someone, you're, you're selling them less than what they should get, or you're buying and you use yours and you're getting more than you should get. God says you're taking advantage of someone who's trying to help you, of someone who is working with you. Whenever you take advantage of someone who's vulnerable or innocent and their intentions are good and you try to take advantage of that, understand that you provoke my anger. Remember what Amalek did. But then we get a detail of what Amalek did that you might, uh, that kind of makes it make more sense. It says, remember what Amalek did to you as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. He cut off your tail and those who were lagging behind you, he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest around your enemies in the land that the Lord your God uh, is giving you, blot out the memory of Amalek. From under heaven, you shall not forget. Here's what Amalek did. The Israelites are weary and faint. They are thirsty. They are hungry. They are just trying to get away from people who are trying to kill them. Edom, Amalek, comes in front of them and says, you cannot go this way. And Israel is not happy about it. And they turn to go the other way. And then Amalek, seeing that the 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 warriors and the leaders go off. And who are the slowest people in a group? And there are probably at least a million people in this group. You have the tail. You have grandma. You have the disabled. You have the hurt. You have those that that can't defend themselves. And they're at the end. And Amalek sees. They weren't thinking, oh, we're going to war. They were were simply there to say, hey, y'all go the other way. But when they see the vulnerable, when they see the disabled... When they see the, the old people, they kill and they take and they rob the old and the lame and the disabled. And they, they don't do it by going to war. They do it by raiding them one at a time when they can't be fought. They come at, they come at them when, they, when the defenses can't be turned, when they're least expecting it. And they just take advantage, not because they were provoked, but because they see an opportunity of someone being weak Someone being lame, hey, this is my chance to exploit them. Understand, God saw this mindset. It wasn't the people. Remember, anytime someone wanted to join in to the nation of Israel, and we see Canaanite cities, we see a prostitute in the first city they come to who is a Canaanite city, and they invite her in, and she becomes part of the lineage of Jesus. You can come in and not be killed. 
But if you have the, the mindset that we are, against, we are against this people because they exist, and we will pick on the vulnerable, we will pick on those who are hurt and down and out, if you see that, you will provoke the anger of God. You will provoke the wrath of God. There's, you want to see the heart of the law. This command is the heart of the law. God loves the vulnerable. God loves the down and out. And anyone who picks on the vulnerable is going against the heart of God. In fact, what many people use as a command to abandon God, I say that's a command that makes me want to love God even more, that God will, will go to war with those who would commit a genocide against Jewish people simply because they exist, would go to war and hurt someone just because of the color of their skin or just because they're lame and hurt. The heart of God is with those who are down and out. Now remember, Jesus fulfilled the law. Whenever we look at the Old Testament law, it tells us how our hearts should be. I'm going to read the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. And Jesus has his disciples around. He wants to talk about the heart of God. And this is what he said. He said, he, well, he's talking about a future time. There's going to be a judgment. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will come to those and say on his right, Come to me, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And he said, the king will answer. Truly I say to you, as you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. But he also looks at the goats and he says, hey, anytime you see the vulnerable, anytime you see someone down and out and you walk by or, or even worse, you take advantage of them. He says, truly, I will say to you, as you did not do to the least of these, you did not do to me. You will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We don't like to think of Jesus talking about eternal punishment, but you've got to understand. The heart of God is provoked when you take advantage of the down and out. When you take and exploit someone who can't defend themselves. Some of you today may feel as if you've been taken advantage of. Maybe you right now have had someone financially take advantage of you. Maybe you've been in a relationship, someone's taken advantage of you, and it makes you feel as if God is far from you. If you know the heart of God, the, God, the heart of God is that he is with you. He is with you, especially when you were down and out, especially when you were vulnerable. There's one thing we could take away it is a righteous and good thing to hate the spirit of Amalek, to hate the spirit of anyone who would take advantage of the down and out, or even worse, would unprovoked call upon the death of a, an entire group of people simply because they exist. The heart of God is for the vulnerable. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we leave here, we're tempted to focus on 
What many, is gonna, many people will see as a weird message. Today I learned to hate. <laughs> Today I learned to hate the Amalekites. Lord, I pray instead we'll be drawn to your heart. We'll move away from just looking at a defeater and we'll see the heart of God in your law. Lord, let it be on our hearts always that when we see someone that's hurting, we help them. When we see someone that they can't help themselves, we step in. When we see a group of people being attacked simply because they exist, we won't remain silent. Instead, we will step up and we will demand justice. Lord, let us be someone who hates the spirit of Amalek, someone who blots out the name of the Edomites. Lord, let our heart love your righteousness. Let us look for opportunities to serve the down and out, to love those who can't help themselves, who can't survive unless someone steps in. Lord, let us be the one to raise them up. Let us be the one to insist on justice. Lord, we thank you for a hard command because it reveals that you love us even when we are down and out. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.